Well, good afternoon. I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, I understand there was a snowflake this morning, so thank you for foregoing your run on the toilet paper, bread, and milk. Uh, that's traditional here in Washington. Uh, and I want to thank you to what I think is going to be a very lively uh, and important discussion. My name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I do want to welcome you officially to the Richard and Sue Ann Mason Policy Center and uh, our discussion today. Uh, one of the most interesting and I think uh, frequently debated questions of ethics in the medical community is how to deal with the chronic shortage that we have of organs uh, for transplant. And the question that arises on medical grounds and philosophical grounds uh, has to do with what sort of compensation can people be ethically provided with for agreeing to donate organs? Who, in essence, uh, owns your organs? Do you own them? Does the state have some sort of preemptive claim to them? Uh, we, we see uh, we, you know, sort of the default position in some cases where the default is that you have to donate organs and you have to opt out uh, versus opt in. We have the question whether or not people can sell organs and all, all of these issues. Uh, one of the interesting things, of course, is that this is often debated in a vacuum. There aren't a great many examples out there for us to draw on uh, to deal with the question of whether or not markets can deal with the organ shortage issue. One of the few countries that actually does allow such markets is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that, of course, makes it a problematic since we don't have a lot of Americans that travel to Iran in order to observe. One of the few who has is our speaker today, uh, and she has published a new book on this. This is uh, Sigrid Fry Revere, uh, who is the founder and president of the Center for Ethical Solutions, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, organization dedicated to educating the public on issues in patient care ethics. And she is also the president of Stop Organ, Tra uh, Stop Organ Trafficking Now, another organization designed to help change the law and attitude towards living organ donation. Prior to that, uh, or formerly at least, uh, she was uh, director of bioethics studies here at Cato. Uh, she's written uh, books on and edited other books on bioethic consultation, written more than 100 ethical, uh, 100 articles. Uh, her star stuff has appeared in uh, most leading newspapers, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, Cambridge Quarterly uh, of Healthcare Ethics, and so on. Uh, I think this is a pretty exciting story. It's not just a policy discussion, but it's also sort of an adventure story as well. Uh, so we're very anxious to hear uh, what uh, Sigrid has to say. So Sigrid, you can lead off here. Sure. Thank you. Well, let me start by saying with an analogy. Um, everybody has somebody that they don't like or don't get along with, whether it's a colleague or a neighbor. Now imagine that that person lives down the street from you in your neighborhood and an epidemic hits and children are dying. Your children are dying, but you notice that that person that you don't like, that person you don't get along with, that their children are not dying. And my question is, how long does it take you to walk down the street and knock on that person's door and say, hey, 
what are you doing differently than I am? In the case of Iran, it took us 30 years. It took us 30 years to go knock on that person's door. Okay, and I was the first person to go over and take a look and say, hey, Iran, why are your children not dying? When here in the United States, 20 to 30 people die every day because they can't get a kidney. So why did this happen? Why are people dying here and people not dying in Iran? The reason is because at the time of the Iranian revolution, Iran, like the rest of the world, was building a system of cadaver organ donation. Because 35 years ago, we thought we could solve, everyone thought they could solve the organ shortage with cadaver organs. And so Iran was part of the Euro network for organ sharing, and they were sharing back and forth technology and, and even patients. And then when the revolution came, they were cut off from that network, and internally they didn't have the structure or the know-how to pursue cadaver organ donation the way the rest of the world was doing. So what did they do? They fell back on the old system. And the old system, at least for kidneys, which makes up 90% of the organ shortage worldwide, was living donors. So we had two parallel tracks going. The US and most of the world said, if we don't have to use human beings, why should we put them at risk? Let's use cadaver organs instead. And then you had Iran, who was excluded from the new technology and the learning that was going on, saying, we're going to just keep going like we've been going and work on using living donors. Well, what it turns out is that we bet on the wrong horse. Okay? We spent all our time and effort developing cadaver organ donation, and we have never caught up. The, the crisis gets worse and worse. We have over 100,000 people right now waiting for kidneys. Maybe 15% will be transplanted this year. The rest will languish and die on dialysis. In Iran, for 15 years now, if you qualify medically to donate an organ, you get on the list and you get one. So what happened here, right? And, and, and why? Um, essentially, technology isn't the answer to everything. Sometimes there are answers that are human-based. No matter what we do, even if every single person was an organ donor when they died, we still would not have enough organs to solve the organ shortage. Okay. Iran has started now again to develop technologies for cadaver organ donation. And we, who've had and tolerated living donation all along, I mean, half the donors in this country even 30 years ago, were living donors. We just didn't work on developing systems that helped the donors donate. We focused on cadaver, while they focused on living. And what they've done over the past 30 years is they've made mistakes, they've made improvements, they've changed things, they've, you know, policies differed 30 years ago than they do now, and they even have regional experiments. In some of the poorer regions, the system is not working at all. In some of the more affluent regions, it's working beautifully, and they have waiting lists for people to donate. Can you imagine that? I mean, we've got 100,000 people waiting for kidneys, and they've got a waiting list for people to donate in some regions. So what did Iran do? Okay. The main thing 
to realize is that they legalized compensated donation. When I talk to people on this issue, they have this image of when money is involved, they have the image of the black market. What they see is desperately poor people violating the law, risking imprisonment, risking you know, um, not being cared for after their surgery, back alley type stuff, which is horrific. But that's what they envision when they envision money being involved. Now, what first thing Iran did was it legalized it, which made it safe, normalized the process, and they started to regulate it to make sure that donors got their money, recipients got people who were well tested and weren't sick with AIDS or malaria, like what happens on the black market. And so they normalized the process by legalizing it. And at this point, it isn't that the desperate don't still donate occasionally in Iran, but the majority of people who donate for compensated kidney donation in Iran are the middle class. They're the buyers and the sellers because you've taken the danger out of the process, okay? By, it's by legalizing it. The second thing they did, and they didn't do this right away, they learned to do this, is that instead of focusing on the recipients who need kidneys, right? We know they need kidneys. They started focusing on what do donors need? This is an equation that takes two people. So their social services start to reach out to donors. Do you have a debt you need to pay off? Do you need health care, dental care, eye care? Do you need household goods, education? So what do you as a donor need to be able to donate? And this concept of sometimes money makes altruism possible started to develop. In this country, there is a disincentive to donate because on top of giving a kidney, you also have to have the financial resources to donate. So we've got financial disincentives because we've been so busy focusing on the cadaver side of things, we've totally neglected this notion of what makes altruism possible. Okay. What do people need in order that they can give? And Iran spent years working on this, figuring out what donors need in order to make it possible for them to donate. And the third thing is a shift in nomenclature, okay? We think of money and we think of selling. But in Iran, a kidney is not a widget. It's not something that um, a vendor sells. They think of donation as a service a service to the recipient, a service to mankind, a service to their country. And so the money is what donors are given in addition to other benefits in order to make it possible for them to help another person. You might think of um, firefighters as an analogy. Um, and they also all think that there's never enough money you could give someone for saving another person's life. So again, the whole notion is that the money or the benefits are the gift that makes altruism possible. Because I have given part of myself to save your life. Any money or benefits that are exchanged are treated as a gift. Or like I said again, something that makes altruism possible. Now when we talk about living kidney donation in this country, we speak of it in those terms. We use that language. The language of sale really comes from the black market. 
And I think if you treat these people as heroes, and in Iran, for example, you get exempt from military service if you've donated a kidney. Why? Because you've already saved a life. You've already served your country. Okay? So it's a whole different way of looking at what a donor is doing and what you need in order to be able to donate. Instead of focusing on the sick person who is dying, we know they need a kidney. You focus on what it takes to make the donor whole, to make the donor happy and proud to help another person. And so it's that whole change in nomenclature that has made it possible and pretty much acceptable in most of Iran. So what can we learn from them? Okay. I think that's ultimately what I'm hoping to get to. My book talks about how things work in different regions. It has donor stories. It has recipient stories. It has stories from the people who helped regulate the system when it first got started. But the real question is, we need to study. We need to look. We need to go knock on that door and say, hey, why are your people living while ours are dying? And I'm only the first. I hope other people you know, will go and take a look and study and think about these issues, do pilot projects, and say, money is not good or bad in itself. It's how you use it, right? So the fact that these donors are compensated in and of itself is not a bad thing. We have to figure out how to save Americans and for all we know, it might be that neighbor down the street we don't like very much who has the answer. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sigrid. And now we'd like to get a couple of perspectives uh, on Sigrid's book, uh, a couple of, of comments, and uh, maybe looking at it a little differently from a couple of folks. Uh, first up will be Dr. Robert Klisman, who is a professor of clinical psychiatry in the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Joseph Mailman School of Public Health, and also the director of Master's in Bioethics programs at Columbia University. He has a business card that's about this, this long. Uh, he's uh, done a lot of reading, uh, writing, uh, talking on a variety of ethical issues in medicine and public health. Uh, author of eight books uh, and about 90 articles but between you, you guys have filled up entire medical journals. Uh, his works appeared in JAMA, of course, as Science and elsewhere, but also the New York Times, Newsweek, and other publications. We're thrilled to have him here today, so Dr. Klisman. Well, thank you uh, for the invitation. Uh, thank you for that introduction, uh, and I'm delighted to be here. I should add one thing you didn't mention is that my second publication actually was from the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, when I was 18, I took a course with Fred Greenstein at Princeton, who was a presidential scholar who was involved, and we came down and interviewed Gerald Ford after he became president, and the AEI actually uh, uh, published that as a booklet, uh, which uh, I have a copy of and I see is on your website. Uh, so I'm delighted to be here, uh, and uh, I uh, very much commend Sigrid for her uh, really impressive work in going to Iran uh, and finding out some of the stories of what people's experiences uh, were there are, uh, and spending uh, two months or so there. Um, uh, and I think that's terrific to help uh, fill in the picture, if you will. But I have a number of questions, both about Iran as a model for what we may do here in this country, about uh, some issues in the book, and also what the implications are uh, for what Iran's doing for what we uh, might do here in the United States. 
So clearly we have a shortage of organs. It's a terrible thing. And we need to think as much as we can and creatively we can, as we can on how to solve that shortage. <laughs> now, uh, uh, there have been reasons for a number of years that Sally has eloquently uh, and others have eloquently argued that we should move to a model where we compensate donors, where we pay people to donate. And presumably that would lead to more kidneys. Uh, we would save money from people who are now on dialysis. Uh, it may even, quote, help poor people. But I would argue that there are several reasons that we should uh, think carefully about that. Uh, one is that uh, there are concerns that if we pay people to donate, we now have several thousand people a year who do donate altruistically. If I need a kidney or if you need a kidney, I'm sure many of you have a sister, a brother, a child who will say, I'll donate the kidney. Uh, and if we start paying people, there have been concerns that a number of people have expressed that, that may crowd out people from saying, I'll do it voluntarily for free. Uh, there's also concerns about exploitation. Uh, in other words, uh, would it be the poor, the desperately poor, for instance, who will be selling kidneys uh, and the wealthy who will be getting them? Uh, and uh, are we concerned about that? And I, I would say, just to stand back, uh, all of uh, Western Europe bans buying and selling body parts. Uh, and when you think about it, we don't allow you to buy or sell human beings. We call that slavery. So should we morally allow you to buy or sell human body parts? Now, all of Western Europe has said, as a result, I think, of the Nazi experience, that that, somehow, that, that is immoral, that that is problematic. Uh, uh, in other countries, in Italy, for instance, I think the presence of the Catholic Church has sort of bolstered that. Um, and I just want you to keep that in mind, because I don't think that is a hard and fast moral prohibition necessarily, but it should make us pause. Do we want to sell parts of our bodies? What does that mean? Does that violate our integrity bodily, uh, 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 et cetera? Now, we come to Iran. Iran, as you all know, is a theocracy. There are severe restrictions on freedom of speech. Thousands of people since the revolution have been arrested for opposing the regime. There's widespread corruption. Inflation now is 32% this year in Iran. There was an article on the front page of the New York Times five days ago. Last year, inflation was 42%. The government hopes to bring it down to 25% this year, but many people, most economists, think that's not likely. Uh, and um, uh, uh, the question then is how we then look at the issue of donation in Iran. So. Sigrid did wonderful work in looking at 2000 to 2000, 2008 to 2009. I think you went back in 2011. Uh, and uh, there are a number of things I just want to highlight in her book. So one is that, as you write, 80% of the people who donate are addicts. Now, in the book, you say, of course, it's not clear what that means. But evidence suggests, and there's been a number of studies since your book, as you know, that have looked uh, further at who donates. And mostly, uh, the evidence suggests they're narcotic addicts, right? They're people addicted to narcotics. And many of the staff, as you describe, feel uncomfortable, uh, and others have described this as well, enabling addicts. So basically, it's desperately poor addicts who are heavily in debt. Um, most have never gotten past high school. Uh, and they're the ones selling their kidney. Uh, and uh, there's some evidence, we could debate this afterwards, it suggests that uh, they look back with regret. It doesn't improve their quality of life. After they've donated, they get this money, they're heavily in debt, they're addicts, they use the money. The staff is sort of enabling their drug habit to sell their kidneys. Uh, and that's problematic. Uh, the, um, 
So of course, many of us may be addicted to caffeine, but this isn't something else. This is people who are narcotic addicts, who, which of course is illegal in this country. Uh, in fact, one person uh, said, for instance, that uh, I've donated once, I wanna donate again, I'll have no kidneys, but I'll just go on dialysis then. Well, that's not a logical person thinking through their options, right? That's someone who just wants money to feed their, feed their addiction, because we know that, of course, you need two kidneys and dialysis is not an answer for anyone. Um, uh, the British Medical Journal reports that of the donors in Iran, 79% are uninsured, 79% are uninsured, 30, only 30% are employed full-time. So 70% of the donors in Iran are uh, either not unemployed or they're employed only part-time. Only 6% have a university degree, and that's been shown in several studies. Uh, recent studies show that 67% uh, don't have more than a high school degree. Uh, now, uh, one of the problem with Iran, and, I, and I'm, I'm, uh, I think we need data. I, th I agree with you, Sigurd, completely that we need to find out more fully what the situation there is, uh, because we really don't know. We don't know how many people are donating, who's donating, with no long-term follow-up data at all. Uh, and these are problems. If we're gonna say we're gonna learn from this country, we should know what's going on in the country. Now, of course, Iran, it's hard to study, but there's also compensated donation in India and Pakistan uh, and other countries. The systems vary, but again, I think we need to know a little bit more. Uh, uh, there was uh, a st one study a few years ago, Dr. Javad uh, Zargushi uh, did a study, and he argued that he found that 76% of the people who donated later, months later, said that they um, regret having donated, and they feel that kidney sales should be banned. 39% said they prefer to beg than to uh, have to donate a kidney after they've donated a kidney. 60% said they prefer to um, get a loan. Now, his data's been debated, but there's been no data refuting that. There's no one's done a subsequent study to find out, well, what percent do regret it several months later? What percent uh, would prefer to beg rather than sell a kidney? Uh, more recent data, Dr. Uh, Falazadeh published a study a year or two ago that found high rates of health problems among people who donated. So he looked at people who were donated to someone in their family, living unpaid donors, versus paid unrelated donors, sort of the addicts. He found that afterwards, the addicts had generally poor health, worse social function, decreased quality of life, they had uh, medical problems, protein in their urine, et cetera. Now one could, of course, we need more study. No, no study, uh, uh, no medical study is the definitive answer for anything, but studies are suggestive over time. Obviously, we need to study that more. Um, uh, right, uh, and I think the fact that there is no transparency, there's no public reporting, these are all problems if we're gonna say we're gonna learn from this experience. Uh, there's also, as, as you describe, uh, haggling about prices. So what happens is, is, as you say, there's one story, and there are many such stories apparently that happen, of uh, donors know who they donate to. And so they show up at the house of the recipient, particularly if the recipient does well with a knife, saying, I want more money. I gave you my kidney, you're alive due to me. So there's lots and lots of, uh, of haggling over prices uh, and people, donors, demanding more money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this goes on fairly routinely. Uh, the, um, Dr. Brumond, who you mentioned, uh, who you uh, interview in the book, is uh, the former president of the Iranian uh, Nephrology Association. So he now says that uh, many docs are against it in Iran. In fact, several of the sites of the... Uh, centers in Iran have now stopped the practice completely of a compensated donation because it's too problematic. 
So Shiraz, as you probably know, has stopped. A few other centers have stopped. Uh, they say that uh, the, it's problematic, all these donors, they have hepatitis C, they have HIV, they're giving it to the recipients often, uh, they're poor, the uh, recipients don't like it, they're being sort of chased the rest of their lives by these donors who say, you owe me, I gave you my kidney. Um, uh, and it's crowded out other people, in fact, wanting to donate. So in fact, the Iranian government has decided to spend less money on compensating donors and the Iranian government is now moving away from this system of, of paying for donors and is encouraging, is spending money to encourage uh, donations from cadavers, from brain-dead cadavers. So the Iranian government itself is saying this is not a, a system that we want to support as much as we have. We need to find other ways of getting um, kidneys. Um, now, uh, Kerman Shah, for instance, is one site that you uh, very wonderfully describe as having problems in doing this. Now, one could say that's just this one site. Um, you know, it has problems. The people are desperately poor. Uh, it's uh, problematic, corrupt in various ways. But uh, you know, the government should simply pay more money uh, to to help the site. However, uh, the Iranian government, if anything, has less money. Uh, and the question is, how representative are the Kermanshaw, for instance, which you describe as being a problematic center. Uh, is that just the one up? Is it, uh, and I would suggest that it may be the fact that other centers are now saying we're not going to pay anyone anymore because it's too problematic as a system, I think is problematic. Um, the other is, uh, um, I think it's, it's terrific that we have these voices of people doing this. The question is, uh, what I teach my students uh, at Columbia is that if you want to inform policy, you need good data. I think everyone would agree with that. And good data should be as objective as possible, not biased. Uh, and uh, the way we evaluate what good data is, you need a sampling system. If I go out and say I interview 10 people in the street, and they all say that person X, uh, they're going to vote for person X for president next year, I can't conclude that Ron Paul or Hillary or anyone else is going to win. Right, I've picked 10 people in the street. Maybe I went to a particular kind of 10 people, right? Uh, maybe I went to, you know, you can imagine where uh, 10 people I go to in one place may say one thing and 10 people say another about who they're going to vote for for president. So you need to have a very good sampling frame. You want to make sure that who you interview is representative of the whole or as representative as possible of the whole. So what we don't know uh, is uh, how many people, how representative the voices that we hear are. So did we go to ask 50 people chosen randomly? Did we just get whoever we wanted? Did we get whoever had a good story or bad story? Again, I think that if we, um, more information about that would help us know how representative. Without that, we can't tell if I just went and interviewed 10 people and everyone's voting for Hillary or 10 people, everyone's voting for Ron Paul or, or whatever it is. You need to say, this is what I did. I went to, I picked randomly, or I went to the six biggest centers. I chose 20 people or whatever you did. I interviewed every other one, et cetera. So I think that kind of <clears throat> um, um, social science perspective um, gives us uh, faith in the data that it's representative and therefore something that we should draw examples from. Uh, finally, I would just submit that there are other possibilities for how we might think about solving the, the problem here. So we could, for instance, uh, not pay people per se as a lump sum, but we could cover their expenses if they donate. So if people donate, we could say, we'll cover your hospital expenses or whatever you want. 
That's one option, but we're not going to give a lump sum. Uh, another, I'll just throw these out. One is uh, Alvin Roth, some of you may know, won the Nobel Prize in economics a few years ago, and has suggested a system of exchanges. So if I need an organ, and my sister says, well, I'll donate to you, but we're not a match. And you need an organ, and your sister says she'll donate to, her, she'll donate to you, but you're not a match. Uh, it turns out that there have been systems that have worked where my sister donates to you and your sister donates to me. And there have been uh, whole chains of this where uh, your sister uh, will do could donate to you, but you're not a match. Your brother can donate to you, but you're not a match. So your brother donates to him, his sister donates to you, your sister donates to me, et cetera. So I think this is one area that could be developed. Now, one could say, well, there's not that much altruistic donation that's occurred in this country. But I would submit that right now it's because we have to, you have to be a match, right? And unfortunately, sometimes a sister comes forward or a daughter or mother and says, I want to donate to you, mom, but we're just not a match. And so it doesn't happen. So the numbers may be low in terms of the number of altruistic donations. But I think that's an alternative way to think about this, for instance, that deserves exploration. I'm not saying that's the answer by any means, but I think there are possibilities like that. Um, and uh, just I'll just put on the table, in Israel, for instance, uh, if you uh, have written that you will donate, uh, you're given priority. You go up in the list. Uh, and um, other countries, for instance, have said that rather than have opt out, uh, I won't ask you uh, how many people here say in, on their driver's license that they're willing to donate. Uh, nationwide, only 30% of Americans say that they're willing to donate on their driver's license uh, because you have to opt in. Other countries in Western Europe, France, Belgium, Norway, are now saying, uh, of course, everyone will opt in. You have to specifically say you're going to opt out. So it's assumed that you'll give, and you have to opt out. And there, uh, there's some variability on how people look at the data. But the suggestion is, for instance, in Belgium, that only 3 or 4% of people opt out. So you have 96 or 97% of the people implicitly opting in, as opposed to 30% here. Now, there are other complications with that. But again, I think the point is that there may be other ways that we can expand the pool. So um, uh, again, we can argue, and I'm sure Sally has many thoughts about many of these <laughs> alternatives, but I, I suggested that you know, we can think creatively about other possibilities. I think before we say that Iran's model is the one that we should adopt based on what we now know. Maybe we'll find other information, but I think we need to proceed with great care in this area. Uh, and uh, I think we all need to work together and put our heads together as we're doing to think about what solution is the best for all. Thank you. Thank you. And next up is Sally Sattel, who is the resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, which is our co-sponsors of today's event. Uh, I should mention that. She's a practicing psychiatrist and a lecturer at the Yale University School of Medicine. Uh, she examines mental health policy as well as political trends in me uh, medicine. Uh, like uh, our other guests, she has written widely in, uh, widely in academic journals on topics in psychiatry and medicine, published many articles on the cultural aspects of medicine, and testified before Congress on a variety of issues. So Sally, we'd like to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much. Um, I just want to start out, of course, by saying that um, <clears throat> I appreciate your book very much, Sigrid. Um, and it it's really took a lot of courage, I think, to do what you did. 
um, and that uh, even though you make a point, it's not systematic in, the, in a classic social science way. That is, that is true. Um, in fact, I could see this at the beginning of a much larger, more systematic um, program. Nevertheless, I think it's deeply relevant to uh, considerations in when we think about uh, systems of incent incentivization. So um, just let me mention that my interest in this stems from a personal experience. A uh, friend gave me a kidney in 2006, and now there's a special circle in heaven for her. So I'm the poster girl for altruistic giving. Um, this wasn't even someone I knew that well. She just kind of heard from a friend of a friend, and it was an amazing thing she did. Um, but I've also, so here I am. I mean, the beneficiary of that amazing generosity. I'd probably be running on dialysis now if it hadn't been for her. But that said, it's, it's all too easy to romanticize altruism, which is what our current system does. In fact, our current system, I would argue, is a qualified um, failure. Um, Altruism is a beautiful virtue. It doesn't produce enough organs right now. In fact, maybe in about two months, the number of people waiting for kidneys will hit 100,000. And uh, 13 people will be dead tomorrow at this time because no one gave them a kidney. And this is due, in my view, completely to the fact that we have a, a prohibition on compensating donors. So I'll spend a few minutes talking about what struck me about Sigrid's account of the system and then talk about lessons for the US, which, as you can guess, I strongly believe has a moral, clinical, and economic imperative to experiment with incentives. Uh, well, it is striking, um, as you note, Sigrid, that the donors exceed the patients. Um, I did, I have to admit, I did look for, you know, where's the Iran, Iran's, uh, you know, government dot, Iran, what is it, dot IR? I don't even know, but, you know, that had all those numbers, and it would be great if they had them, but I suppose this is an impression that is uniformly um, held by all the clinicians who work in, in transplant there. It's also very interesting that a good number of them, even if not all of them, and even not necessarily representative, but a good fraction are middle class. That's that's important, and I think would figure very prominently in, an, in a system in this country. I also, uh, I also feel that Iran is not, I'm getting the impression, Sigur, that you agree, but maybe not, we'll discuss this. Don't see Iran as the, as the shining model on the hill of what a compensated donation system would, uh, would be like. And I agree that, in, in particular, the direct bargaining element of it. Um, I don't know that this was mentioned explicitly, but the person, who, the donor gets some money from the government a fixed amount, and then a somewhat variable amount from the donor himself. And that involves some haggling, and it's, you can imagine, it's at the, at the very least unseemly. At the worst, it leads to people feel as if they, feeling as if they're being taken advantage of. And as I'll emphasize later, that's, to me, just, that would be just deadly for any kind of system that we might devise. Um, the recurrence in your book of the theme of being adequately rewarded is so important. Um, one of your donors says that what they, they felt that they really weren't, and this, there was a lot of variation between sites, but at, at uh, one of the um, donors, and uh, in fact several have mentioned that, it wasn't just the money we were after. We wanted to be, wanted to be thanked. We wanted to feel like we were really being taken care of. 
Um, and in fact, one of them said, uh, we, what we should be told is come and save a person's life and we'll take care of you. And, uh, and tragically, I guess some of them felt that, that that wasn't the case. They kind of did feel taken advantage of. The book also underscores, because I see this book kind of as ethnography more than anything else, um, or an impressionistic kind of ethnography, that it underscores the complexity of the donor-recipient relationship. I mean, some of the do um, donors uh, were so moved by their potential recipients because they meet them first. That's also prob potentially problematic. But in this case, it had a, a nice outcome in that the person who met the recipient first was even more moved by that person's plight and even more enthusiastic about giving. Um, and some recipients have felt very protective of their donors and wanted to help them out throughout the course of their life. Now, this is the human dimension that, uh, according to some critics, compensation by its very nature annihilates. And it's clear that it, that it doesn't uh, in all cases, for sure. In fact, in the US, because it's illegal to enrich donors, we, we go so far, we kind of do the opposite, a perversion of the opposite, which is we coerce altruism. Now, I grant you, and I think my case was one of them, but uh, as well, there are people who give to you know, relatives. I mean, if, you could, if your mom had cancer, God forbid, what, what can you do but pray the chemo works? But if you could give her you know, an organ and that would, that would cure her cancer, that would be amazing. Um, people give to their relatives and they say, I'll do it again. It was the best thing that I, it, I feel it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. So I don't mean to downplay how momentous uh, it is for someone to give an organ to a relative or a friend in, in a loving way. But there's also a dark side to altruism that you don't hear very much about. And that's what I mean, this coerced altruism, which is basically <laughs> that, well, Mike, so you're going to let your brother die, eh, Mike? <laughs> and what about that inheritance you were thinking about? Well, <laughs> I mean, these are subtle pressures and maybe not so subtle. In fact, I've written about them elsewhere. If, if folks are interested, but these, that's no surprise, right? These are human relationships. And, uh, and that's not the kind of situation in which you want donors to give either. That's not the spirit of altruism, the, the so-called gift of life that uh, the transplant community promotes, the narrative of the gift. That's, not, that's a perversion of the gift. It's lovely when it happens, as it did for me, but coerced altruism is a real problem, I think. Um, finally, also, it's very, another memorable point in the book was how, and I, I have to admit, I don't know that this is, uh, I've never heard this before, but it's an interesting um, notion, this point about pursuing one's self, the, the assumption that pursuing one's own self-interest somehow negates the value of an other-directed behavior. Um, and what you say in the book is that that's pretty much, or Iranians anyway, see that as a, as a Western concept, and that they are much better in their culture as seeing financial and humanitarian motives intertwined, uh, which I think is very realistic. Um, they do that all the time. In fact, that's probably the essence of, if we want to stick with this, <clears throat> you know, with the topic at hand, um, that's really the essence of surrogate motherhood. Um, you, uh, all the studies on surrogacy show that the women who who perform this are, um, they're not gonna do it for, they're not gonna do it if they don't get paid, 
but they are deeply moved by women who can't have their own children and, and are so rewarded and gratified by being able to help them. Um, taking it to another profession, for example, volunteer firemen. I mean, somehow this notion has gotten wrapped up in the transplant community that if you pay for something, you devalue it. Well, there are volunteer firemen and paid firemen, and we didn't appreciate the paid firemen any less that ran into the 9-11 building and got killed. I mean, <coughs> teachers, doctors, rabbis, people's humanitarian motives to help others mix all the time with their financial motives to do well and do good. There's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, a lot of this has been obliterated by many of the uh, by the, a lot of the vocabulary used in the organ, um, uh, organ incentive debate, none of which you'd hear from Dr. Klitzman, who's very, uh, very sophisticated in his analysis. I don't know how many of you have been around this debate, but boy, sometimes it gets pretty, um, it gets pretty ugly. Um, like words like exploitation is just supposed to shut the you know conversation down. Um, in other words, just by the very nature of the fact that that uh, someone might be wealthier and someone might be less financially um, uh, you know, well-situated, that it's, it's inevitably an exploitive situation. It might be, but it's not inevitably exploitive at all. And I'm going to talk about the conditions very briefly under which it's, it's not exploitive. Um, we hear coercion. Well, the real definition of coercion is your money or your life. It's not offering people a choice. There's a difference between decisions that are distorted and those that are informed. I grant you it's not a bright line, but there are differences. And too often, some of the partisans in this debate just don't even recognize that. Um, what we don't want to see is undue inducement, you know, where I offer you, you're so poor and I offer you so much money that you basically do something that you don't want to do and that you end up regretting. That's what we fear the most is donor regret. And how do we avoid this? Well, we have to have people think that their action was worth it. And basically, that involves, I think, these final these principles, respect their autonomy to decide what is in their best interest. Doesn't mean everyone does that. Everyone does make decisions in their own best interest, but that should be our default when we approach them, that, that they've thought about this. And that leads us, of course, into informed consent so that the person has reasonable expectations, that we protect them, that they get the best care, and they get medical follow-up. And, and this is key, and this gets back to exploitation, you're only exploited when you're not paid, I'd argue, you're not paid enough when people feel that they haven't been adequately rewarded. And finally, that gratitude is expressed. If all these elements are in place, it's hard to see how anyone is exploited or treated as basically a piece of meat, which is what the, the folks who throw about the word commodification often worry about, that people won't be respected. Well, I worry about that too. Uh, but the very nature of this, of this activity is not the same thing as commodification. It depends on how it's done. Go to a black market if you want to see commodification. So uh, finally, what I think should be done is to leverage the altruism that's out there by having uh, Congress allow pilot studies. We need data. Um, we don't have time, and maybe in the Q&A we can do this. I, I would argue that presumed consent uh, is 
is not adequate. Uh, and the Israeli uh, situation seems to have been kind of a failure. And I'll t it's very interesting that uh, I'm surprised, too. It started out with a boom, but now there's a free rider problem, it seems. Anyway, um, let donors carefully accept, um, excuse me, uh, let's have a divide. What I'd like to test um, is a system where, uh, that is, where there's a third party who is the, for lack of a better word, purchaser or payer, not the person who needs the organ, but a third party, federal, state, local government, charity, government approved, uh, and that the reward itself is an in-kind benefit, not cash. And that kind of plays to the concern you had that a lot of people have, and that I would have too, is that you have desperate people rushing into this kind of a situation. That's the last thing you want, um, because they, they're going to act impulsively and probably re regret it. Um, so you want people who, so what do you offer people? So you basically weed out the folks who are impulsive and desperate. Well, you put in, you in, uh, incorporate a waiting time maybe of six months. No one who's desperate for money is going to wait six months. Um, and as I said, you don't offer what poor people want, which is cash, you know, right away. So you would either give them an in-kind benefit in the form of, let's say, a contribution to a 401k account, a tuition voucher, um, tax credits, this kind of stuff. You, if you could even build in that person had to have a tax, um, you could build in a tax ceiling or floor so that uh, um, people have a baseline income that's, uh, you don't, you know, that shows they're not desperately poor, although I think that's discriminating against really low-income people, and I wouldn't go for that. And you can pay for it with the tons of money you will save from dialysis, which costs about $80,000 a year compared to the medications one has to take every year, uh, every day, excuse me, um, anti-rejection meds that cost between twelve dollars and $18,000 a year. Um, anyway. The facts are these. Too many people are dying right now. There's a flourishing black market. Uh, we didn't talk about that much, but you know, Sigrid alluded to it, and it's out there. All the solutions have, have tried have been um, <clears throat> inadequate, and we need evidence that a system of incentives will work. I think Sigrid's book, or what Sigrid has observed, uh, many of these suggestions are relevant to our considerations, though certainly Iran would not be a model for the United States. Thank you. All right, I think we'll give Sigrid the last word if you want to take about three minutes or so to respond to this. And then uh, we also have a brief, uh, I think about two or three minute video you want to play, and then we'll get you your questions on this. So, Sigrid, sure. and then right into the video. Well, I need to thank Dr. Klitzman for pointing out every single negative story that I had in my book, okay? My book is a collection of stories, mostly from kidney sellers and donors in Iran, OK? Now, as far as methodology is concerned, I had 211 transplant stories. Over half of those are people who sold their kidneys. I went to six regions. The people I interviewed is I went to three different places. I went up on the kidney transplant wards and went door to door to door to door with no government, no one telling me I could or couldn't speak to other people, okay? So it was random in that sense. It was people on the floor. This, actually, I went to four places. 
Another place I went was dialysis centers, okay? And none of those 210 stories, I had another 50 dialysis stories, okay? So people waiting for a transplant who hadn't gotten one yet. So that isn't even within my 210. Then I went to the Anjuman, who are the nonprofits who do the matching, okay? The Iran, Iranian government licensed nonprofits who match donors and recipients. They have databases, okay, where they put everybody in and they start the matching process. I went there and I interviewed people before they matched, after they matched, when they came to get their money or their benefits. And then the fourth place I went was the health clinic where donors and recipients came to get their checkups. So I talked to some people who donated 10 years ago. I spoke to people who donated six months ago. I spoke to people who were about to donate, okay? So maybe 210 isn't enough in six different regions randomly pulled from those populations, but I wouldn't say that I just have a couple anecdotes, okay? It's a little better than that. And I do talk about that in my preface and where, you know, there's some statistics interspersed with the stories. I just thought the stories were a good way to get the public to think about what these people are going through and why. If you asked, we had also, we had a set set of questions that we asked everyone. One of them was, do you feel exploited <clears throat> about I'm guessing now, I'd have to check my data, but about a fifth of the people said yes. And we'd say, why? Well, because I didn't get paid enough. Not because he got paid, right? But he didn't get paid enough. The other question was, what would you do if you couldn't sell a kidney? Uniformly, people would go white in the face and say, oh my God, my kids would starve. I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage. I wanted to start my own business. I wanted my daughter to go to college. What would I do? Public assistance? Steal? You know? So, you know, the issue is everybody needs money for something. The middle class people were starting businesses, building additions on their homes, sending their kids to college. Poorer people were paying off their loans, paying their rent, feeding their family. The amount of money they give you, on average, of my 210 people that I, that I interviewed, the amount of money they get is enough to feed a rural family for four years. This is a lot of money, okay? It's enough, and it also buys you time. So would you rather that family starve now, rather than have a person donate their kidney and save a life? Because that's really what it comes down to. You know, maybe you think the middle class person shouldn't be giving up a kidney to build an addition on their house. Really? I mean, who should be making that kind of decision? Do you think a poor person should go work in a mine or clean bathrooms instead of having a month of inconvenience and saving a life? You know, we were talking about the firefighters. I mean, just because someone's poor doesn't mean they lose their reason and can't make a rational choice. So if you have a legalized system where there's informed consent and people know what they're doing and what they're getting into, they see a social worker, they see a psychologist, they have a waiting period, okay? They see the physicians, they talk to other donors. These people know what's going on. Some of the stories you heard, for example, the donors 
who went to the recipient's house with a knife. This was a story from the 80s, okay? The system was new. It was before regulation. One of the things they started to do is give people options like open adoption. Do you want to know your recipient? Do you want to know your donor? Only if both say yes did they get to know each other. Okay, so the, the, the donor who went with a knife to the recipient's house, you know, I mean, that for one, that could happen anywhere, but now they have laws. If anyone tries to extort more money, they get kicked out of the system. The drug addict story, that was one of the big mistakes Iran made in the beginning. In the very beginning, 35 years ago, they allowed drug addicts to donate. They don't anymore. They screen them. They test them. Some of the poorer regions do it selectively. Places like Tehran test every single donor. Okay? We aren't a poor country. We, can, we don't have to look at Karamal Shah, where the system is a failure, and say, oh, that's the image. That's the one we're going to follow. Of course not. We can look at the regions where it's working and say, what aspects of that make sense, right? The reason there's bad examples and good examples in the story, in the book, is because they both exist. And it really is a fallacy of generalization to say, just because we think Iran does a lot of things wrong, to say Iran does everything wrong. This is the neighbor we don't like down the street, remember? We don't like this person. But this person's children are living. Okay? And I should not be the last person to go over there and look. Okay? And when I did, I did as thorough a job as I could without the government following me around, telling me who I could see or not see. And take it for what it is. A few examples of people who did things differently and saved lives. And as Sally said, it's time we do some pilot projects. It's time we experiment with paying people maybe a little, maybe a little more, and see if we can learn from their 30 years of experimenting it with this notion. We've become very good at you know, cadaver donations, at, you know, keeping, uh, at retrieval and, and storage and, and, and transport and um, transplanting. And Iran's just getting started in that area. But we've totally neglected the living donor side of the equation. And so we need to start thinking about it. And that's the stories in there, in my book, and the data in my book, <laughs> can show you that it's worth trying, at least from, on the perspective of pilot projects, because, because, it is worth knowing whether or not it will work. That's the whole question. We shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We should give it a try. Because otherwise, we're, we're, we're ignoring someone just because, for some reason, we don't like them. And regardless of what anyone else says, Iran is the only country in the world that has solved its kidney shortage. And there aren't Shiraz that was set up as the example of trying to change to a Western system. Yes, it is. And guess what? 
you have to wait six months to a year to get a cadaver organ, and then they let you go buy one, okay? So in other words, they have a waiting list for kidneys, but they only make you wait so long, and then they let you resort to the system that the rest of Iran has. Why? Because just relying on cadavers doesn't work. If every single one of you were a donor, we'd maybe get 30 more thousand kidneys a year, maybe, maybe. And that's significant. But when we've got 100,000 people waiting, it does not solve the problem. Plus, there's a whole issue of, is that eminent domain of the body, which I think it is. It ends up being the government owning you. You have to opt out. You have to say, no, sorry, I would like to keep my kidney or I'd like to keep my body. Um, but that's a whole other philosophical issue. If you have a live person with informed consent that says, I would like to help save a life if you can help cover my costs, if you can help pay, make sure I have enough money that I come out ahead instead of behind after doing so. There you have a living person making a decision for themselves. And as a society with a rule of law, we can make sure they're informed. That's what rule of law means. We can make sure it's fair, right? So whatever problems Iran has, we're not Iran. We should be able to do better. Thank you. Thank you. Run the video.
right. And just to let you know, uh, Sigrid will be signing books, and the books will be for sale uh, just outside the lunchroom in a, in a couple of minutes as soon as we're done taking your questions, which is what I'm now going to turn it over to you right now. So anybody who has some questions, yes, up and back with Voice of America. Mentioned this two or three times. Uh, we have solved that they have solved the problem of, of uh, kidney transplants in Iran. How do we know that? Is that provided by the government or are there independent sources that say that the problem has been solved? The government has been claiming it. There is one physician in Kermanshah that says it's not true. His data is from 30 years ago, from when he was a medical student, and he, um, and he has not interviewed any kidney sellers <laughs> since then. Um, in Kermanshah, the nonprofits that um, arrange the kidney matches, it's really the money comes from three places, the government, charity, and the recipients. And in Kermanshah, the recipients really pay nothing. It's charity and government. And when the charity runs out of money, there's no more transplants for that year, OK? So that's in the poor regions. In the richer regions, like Mashhad and Isfahan, they have extra money at the end of the year. They're giving away health care vouchers for the whole family of the donor, OK? So it, well, the government is claiming they have, OK? Um, every time I went to the matching the organizations, the NGOs that do the matching, they have the data. I mean, they have the computer matches, and they tell me there's a waiting list for people who want to donate and not enough transplant recipients to meet the need of the donors. So I mean, if they've got it computerized for their region, for their transplant region, and I went to six different regions, and the only one I went to where they regularly ran out of money was Kermon Shah. So money is directly related as to whether or not they transplant everyone. Tom? Can I answer that? Oh, I'm sorry. Sure. Go ahead. I would just say I think these are important issues and an important question. Uh, the fact is that there is no transparency. There is no national follow-up. There is no CDC following, as in this country, how many people are waiting, how many people have been transplanted. There's no long-term follow-up data. Uh, the evidence suggests that there's still the evidence from published last year. Uh, suggests that there still is um, med major medical problems among people who donate, uh, that uh, the story with the knife was, was, uh, is not the usual. People don't usually use knives, but there continues to be haggling that goes on. Uh, that's why not just Shiraz, but other centers have as well have decided not to do compensation anymore, period. Uh, that's why the government has decided not to spend as much money in Iran, the Iranian government, on compensation as opposed to using it for other means to get organ donation by building up its system of uh, 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 deceased uh, cadavers and getting donation from that means and changing attitudes towards that. Uh, and I think that, uh, I think that again, I think Sigma did a terrific job finding out about on the ground what's going on there, but we don't have, I don't think we, I would argue we don't have the whole picture that uh, there is, Iran's not known as a country for uh, openness, for transparency, and so it's very hard to know. Uh, and again, it's still, uh, you know, a lot, there's a, a percentage of the people are illiterate, who just, the data has shown who do donate, whether they understand what they're getting themselves into, we don't know. Again, 79% are uninsured, 67% never went past high school, 
so this is a poor uh, area, and the evidence suggests that there's still high rates of people on narcotics who are donating. Thinking in on the next question, perhaps. Uh, Tom, Tom Palmer with the Atlas Foundation. I'd like to first mention how refreshing this is compared to the juvenile musings of Michael Sandel, uh, who is driven by, it's icky, and I don't like it. <clears throat> but I have a question about what drives the opposition to incremental changes and a concern about this data lacking as if it's all or nothing. We get all this or all that. But we don't have to make that choice. Can't we have a little bit more of something else that might improve it for some people? Why is that not happening? Because it seems to me crazy not to be willing on the margin to experiment with additional sets of incentives and programs. And yet, Michael Sandel and people like that somehow hate the idea. Why is that dominating the discussion and we don't see, let's try a little bit more of this or a little bit of that or experiment on the margin with this? I'm, I'm honestly puzzled by the logjam in policy improvement in this country. Well, let me make Dr. Klisman is chief spokesman for Michael Sandel, and then I will let uh, let. Sig well, I, as Sally said, I'm not a spokesman for Michael no, Sandel. I mean, I you know, I I think I'm open to the possibility, and I didn't mean to be too harsh on Sigrid's book again, which I think is terrific. I think that we need good data. I think we all agree. I think Sally's notion that there should be pilot programs to see what are different ways of dealing with it. I don't have a to me, paying someone for a kidney is not a moral black line, that we should never go past that. Uh, um, I think that we shouldn't say that is the, let's, let's all, everybody immediately jump over the line. But I think we need to think sensibly. And I think that there are potential costs. If we're going to do a regulated market, what would it look like? And I think to have studies, pilot programs would be terrific. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just kidding about you, right. Michael Sandel. So, is he going to tell anybody? Well, I can do Sandel, but, um, oh, you don't want to respond? I think we actually all agree on that. I mean, stop organ trafficking now is lobbying Congress um, to create some small incremental changes that will increase the pool, mainly by removing disincentives to donate right now that exist right now, because that seems to be the least controversial. Um, it's going to make a small difference, but we're hoping it will make some difference. Um, as far as the insurance question is concerned, Iran has the same insurance type program as we do. If you're employed, your, ins your employer gives you insurance, and then they have free insurance in the rural areas and things like that. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, that, I, I don't know what the whole notion of it, you know, all of them being uninsured or anything like that. I mean, I think it's really a cross section of the population. Um, and Shiraz is really the only place that's experimenting with um, cadaver organ donation right now on a large scale at, to the detriment of living donations. In Shiraz, they do three times as many liver transplants as kidneys because the people get desperate and they forum shop and leave Shiraz, okay? Because that Western model transplants people too late the longer you're on dialysis, the sicker you get. And the chance of your transplant working goes down 30%, what, after the first year or something like that. Um, so when you're on dialysis, you know, the longer you're on dialysis, the less chance, even once you get a transplant, 
that it will succeed. Um, there was another point. Oh, why is everyone so, this is the one I'm chatting, why is there such resistance to, um, I mean, you know, you were mentioning Sandel, why does his view hold sway? Well, actually, I think it's the National Kidney Foundation's view that holds sway. I'm sorry, I'm stealing the thing here, but um, that's the answer. I think that's fundamentally the answer. I don't know what you think about this. I think that the biggest impediment to progress so far has been the National Kidney Foundation. I say that based on the two years we spent lobbying. And, and every, every office would say to us, we had a nice draft bill from Senator Specter, mm -hmm. and, and we were trying to get co-sponsors. And every, draft, every office said, I mean, I understand this. What is the National Kidney? You know, what is the large? The basically the, the one well-known interest group think. And they were right in the office, um, you know, right after us, and uh, cutting, this, cutting this down to size, basically with the Sandelian logic that uh, it somehow cheapens the gift. Um, and whereas Sandel argues from corruption, I mean, that, that's the argument from corruption, that no matter how many people benefit, it's morally wrong. Whereas most bioethicists, and I don't mean you, uh, Robert, but uh, what you tend to hear most often is um, arguments from consequence, which is that there's no way you can do this without exploiting poor people. Uh, well, the latter you can address with arguments to people who are open-minded. The former, it's hopeless. Right, and, and I also think just historically, it, when the National Organ Transplant Act was passed, uh, Dr. Jacobs, among other things that he suggested, suggested that we could possibly import donors from developing countries, pay them and send them back home. And Congress reacted very strongly and just banned all payment and was being told at the same time by a very optimistic medical community, we can do it with cadaver organs. And it, there's a certain logical sense, and I buy it, that if you can solve the problem with cadaver organs, why put human beings even at a slight risk, right? But we can't. So if people accept that risk with informed consent, and there's a benefit to them, whether it's an altruistic benefit of saving a relative, or a financial benefit of helping them solve some problem of their own, then why not? Um, and what happened is because of that, we have this black market where Americans, because we are wealthy, are probably the worst offenders or among the worst offenders on the black market. We are now exploiting those people that we were trying <laughs> to prevent from exploiting. Because when it comes to living or dying, people get desperate. And so they go and buy kidneys in developing countries. And there is exploitation because there is no protection for those donors. There's no informed consent. There's no testing. There's not adequate after-surgery care. And Pakistan, which was brought up as an example, these are gray markets. These aren't regulated markets. India, Pakistan, they had unregulated markets where if a donor was cheated, they had absolutely no recourse. In a study I saw out of Pakistan, 200 people interviewed, not a single donor got the money he was promised, okay? That's, that is not an example of what will happen in the United States. These are the reasons why you have a rule of law and you have informed consent, and you have a system within a government that takes care to make sure there's fairness. 
I'm going to try and ask, ask our panelists to try and keep the their answers short because we've got a lot of questions out here and we've got about five minutes to get them in. So okay. right, uh, right there first. and You're, you're next. Okay. One, two. I started, my career early on. I started my career early on as a medical director of dialysis and transplantation at Yale a long time ago. I'm, yeah, to make sure you, we can hear you for the record. We also have people on watching this on, online, so we want to make sure everybody. And can you identify yourself? Uh, I'm Barry Strouch. I started my career at Yale and was medical director of dialysis and transplantation in the pioneer days of transplantation. And I've always been a nephrologist, but finished uh, my most active career as chairman of medicine at Inova Fairfax Hospital. I mention that specifically because that was the site in which we had a physician 25 years ago who, in fact, tried to set up a business in which he would import kidneys to the United States from developing countries and then sell them. It led to a special Senate subcommittee that uh, Senator Gore mm -hmm. ran. Um, it, it led to watching Ted Koppel at night with my colleague, from the hospital who was a pretty bad person in terms of in trouble with the law in a variety of ways eventually. <clears throat> and that whole notion was castigated. But I've lived with all these kind of problems over the last 40 years, and I don't think there's a combination issue that I haven't seen or been Sorry, president question. at ethics conference, whatever. <clears throat> and, and the fact is it's very, very complex. We have a cultural problem in the United States where people don't want to donate kidneys to relatives in the numbers that you would suspect. Um, I had a, a 20 Sorry, can I, can I, we, we need to come to a question. I'm going to pass it on because I have too much to say. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Next, next time we'll put you on the panel. Okay, sure. Right over here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Hassan. I was born in Tehran. And I'm surprised why Dr. Klitzman has some uh, kind of a feeling toward uh, Iran if we can learn something from somebody, I, I don't care if they are likable or not likable. And uh, Dr. Kleisman looks so much like Iranians. I don't know if you have any roots from Iran or not, because he looks so much <laughs> like the uh, people who live in Iran. They're Jewish, and we're proud of them. And uh, several years ago, the question is that why would he have resistance toward the country? Because something we want to learn from them and then I just want to give you a sample of what they did several very, years ago. Very, very short. In Mississippi, they started small uh, clinics, and they uh, put a registered nurse there, and they improved the health uh, situation in the state of Mississippi throughout. So that is for you to go and find out, and everybody else probably so, knows. So let me show I have, I have nothing against Iran. Some of my, literally, okay. some of my best friends are Iranian, and I, I, I'm sure you know many of them. We can talk afterwards. Yes, uh, and I'm simply talking about, you know, is this ready for importation into the United States? No. I mean, we're not uh, talking about right now. It's been talked to start a pilot program and get some funding here. Funding. Don't be scared that it's going to No, no, no you would agree that we should, we should learn. We yes, should absolutely. I, I totally, I'm saying we should learn, et cetera, et cetera. I'm saying, you know, do we have the data? We have a long-term, um, well, sure. you know, uh, data from Iran to say, Let's do it. It works. I mean, I, that's why I'm hesitant. But I have great respect for Iran and Persia, et cetera. Okay. One more. Uh, we have two more questions. We'll take one there, and then you get the last one. 
Uh, yes, hi, my name is Jeffrey. Um, and in fact, my father, uh, sorry, my grandfather was the patent of the first kidney transplant. Uh, John Putnam Merrill, possibly you've heard of him. Um, anyway, my question is, and I hope this isn't too broad a question, but um, you seem to have talked a lot um, about the difference between the United States and Iran in donating kidneys as um, being a gesture of either goodwill or of greed. Um, you know, how many do it out of you know, the goodness of their heart, they want to help uh, their family members and so forth, or how many do it for financial gain. And I was hoping you could, um, I was hoping, you know, you could inform me as to what you believe the difference between the West and the Middle East is in achieving, in, in undergoing this procedure, how, how they differ. Actually, Sal, you alluded a little bit to this uh, earlier, the, the and, tie-in and the motives. I know you haven't had a chance you know, to read the book, but it's very clear from there that, that it is the, the intermingling of, of financial and, and humanitarian impulses that uh, you know, reflected many of the stories for sure. Um, anyway, that's what, and, and, and here, I would imagine in a first world, I mean, a, well, a rounds of, well, Iran's not the third world, certainly, but there are great disparities there that I don't think exist here as much in any case. Um, but that, uh, you know, first world donation would certainly be different at the very least than, than desperate, if everyone were desperately poor. And I use the model of surrogacy, um, as you recall. Uh, one thing I think, again, that a lot of the transplant community gets too wrapped up in is the motives of the donor. Frankly, I don't care. As long as someone <laughs> is well-informed and their health is protected, you know, they have to know what they're getting into. That's clearly, they're well-informed and their health is protected. If they want to build an addition to their house, because it's a game room as opposed to a way to get more income, well, that's their business, and I respect that. They saved a life. I mean, um, the, 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 what's at stake is so great here that I don't think we can afford to be finicky over our preferences about, I'm not saying you're saying that, but I've heard people say that. What if they buy a car? Well, okay. All right, last, last question. Yes, I don't want to take your time because you're late, but, um, uh, and um, uh, I, I uh, respect uh, Dr. Fry Revere's uh, uh, venture uh, in Iran, and um, I certainly do think you should experiment in the United States with new models. Uh, perhaps, as some have said, you might uh, experiment with legalizing prostitution, for instance. You know, and you could argue that it makes Organs. it much safer, and uh, the women are protected from exploitation, <laughs> and so on. But uh, to take Iran uh, literally as a model, uh, I would say, is not. Uh, uh, defensible, really, because uh, this system, uh, you know, these peons of praise that we've heard uh, really do not apply. Unfortunately, it's a deeply flawed and corrupt system, uh, and uh, uh, poor people are taken advantage of, uh, take it from me. Uh, and uh, the, uh, there's no question that poverty has a detrimental effect on uh, ethics and uh, uh, you know, the counseling which takes place is really not uh, uh, acceptable, uh, nor is the testing uh, as it should be. Um, right. I can discuss this later because sure. there isn't time. Well, we'll let, uh, let Sigrid uh, have the last word here if you want to respond to that. Those, that. My only comment there is, thank God 
We're not Iran, right? But that doesn't mean we can't learn from them. And you don't have to take everything hook, line, and sinker. You pick and choose what works from the examples out there. And it's different from region to region, from hospital to hospital. And you just learn both from how they've succeeded and how they failed. They've got 35 years of history where you can see what they tried and what failed and what worked. That's all I'm saying. We don't need to be exactly like Iran to learn from them. All right, well, thank you all very much. Appreciate your coming. We